Hello and welcome to the first ever National Trust Gardens podcast. I'm Alan Power, the head gardener at Stourhead in Wiltshire, and I'll be with you throughout this three-part series. During this series, we'll share some of the stories of the great gardens around our country. I'll meet some remarkable colleagues in the National Trust who care for plants, animals, the past and the future. And we'll also hear about the history of these amazing places and hopefully inspire you to visit and create a special place of your very own. October is one of the most exciting times of the year. And thankfully for me, we're starting on my home turf here at Stourhead. I've worked at Stourhead for over 20 years. The thing I originally fell in love with at Stourhead was the tree collection. And some of the trees here are up to six and 700 years old. They're amazing specimens. It's not just the trees themselves though, but it's the colors that they throw out at the end of the season that keep me entertained. The blend of those colors reflected in the water sitting in their natural environment, surrounded by the wildlife we have at Stourhead, just brings the whole place to life. Stourhead was given to the National Trust in 1946 by the Hoare family, and the National Trust have been looking after their legacy ever since. I'm standing by the lake, which is actually one of the most important centrepieces at Stourhead. It was created in the 1750s by damming the River Stour, which is quite a statement to make. The estate isn't just the garden that you see when you come to Stourhead. The estate is two and a half thousand acres, with three thousand acres roughly still owned by the Hoare family next door. You see farmland as you wander across the estate. You'll see acres and acres of woodland stretching into the distance. But at the heart of that wonderful estate is the iconic 18th century landscape garden. So we're about to cross the bridge into the wall garden at Stourhead. And this bridge was shiny and new when I first started work here in 1996. But what it's done for us really is it's given people access to the heartbeat of what used to be a very important part of the garden, providing food for the estate. So as you walk through the gate, suddenly you're met with a barrage of fruit trees. I can hear in the background one of the garden team busy collecting apples. And this is Emily Otgren. Hey, right. Hi Em, how are you doing? So Emily, I remember this space, you know, for 21 years it's been changing. And mm. where we're standing at the moment, um, you couldn't get into. No. Because it was covered in brambles. We had a little tree nursery in the next compartment, but we never came in here. It was inaccessible. And over the past, well, quite a few years, we've, we've changed it, we've developed it, we've added to it. But what we've done as well is to try and unpick a little bit of the history of the place. And yeah. you can see that vine, which is looking really good. It's one of the biggest hints to the history of this wall garden that, that you'll see, because that vine used to sit in the vine house that was yeah. along the wall. The other actual feature that's still here is, if you see the, the far wall here, which is sort of east of us, it actually has a proper roof on it. But what you actually did, if you wanted to grow peaches against that wall, because that wall is going to retain the heat and radiate it out again once it gets cooler, you can put a sort of lean-to, hang it onto that roof bit, and not only will it protect the peaches from something called leaf curl, which is like splashing water and that kind of thing, but it also gives that early heat in the spring. So that's what they would have done. And that's the other feature that we can still see. These walled gardens would have been covered in covered growing areas. And it was a real way of kind of displaying not just your your wealth a little bit, but being able to put and get your head gardener and garden team to put peaches on the table 
you know, when you yeah. had visitors. And oh, yeah. as you say, protect your peaches with the curtains, force the pineapples in pineapple pits yeah. and put them on the table so that when your guests came, you said, yes, I can grow pineapples. Yeah. And I've now I've read in job descriptions for head gardeners that, you know, you had to be able to produce, you know, exotic fruit. Yeah. And it's, it's a fantastic thing. And we can see as we look across here, you know, we're growing veg nowadays so that visitors to Starhead can see you know, potatoes being grown, leeks being grown, cabbages being grown. And also in the distance, you know, the raspberries, you know, the sweet peas, the beans, it's all part of what wall gardens were about. And I think the people we see walking through today, it's lovely for them to be exposed to it. Oh, absolutely. And and it's so down to earth. You know, it's, it's proper gardening. By the looks of things, the kind of the harvesting is still carrying on at Stourhead and you know these these veg are harvested and it doesn't go into the gardener's stew does it? No no I'm afraid not uh, we we sell uh, to the restaurant they 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 pre-order what they know they're going to need throughout the season so we grow specifically for the farm shop and the restaurant. Now this area of the garden um, I've known it for many years and one of the first jobs I did when I started here as a gardener was I finished planting the box hedging and as we stand in here today the the box hedges are gone yeah it's because of the box blight and box blight is around the country at the moment yeah. and it's hitting box plants and yeah. we spent time scratching our heads wondering what we were going to replace so we've gone for lavender up in front of the olives which yeah. actually I'm quite pleased with they come from the same uh, area of the world so they're obviously happy together so why change what works <laughs> and from my point of view when we were thinking about it thinking in the wall garden we were thinking down the route of herbs and you know keeping it keeping it linked to production and the culinary aspect of what we can do so the lavender actually fitted in really 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 well um, no it, it works really well we do have greenhouse growing and it's it's important when you're growing inside a space like that you actually need uh, to introduce things that are going to eat the aphid because otherwise you've got you have an explosion of aphid growth because it's ultimate uh, conditions for them so you need plants near the greenhouse that attracts bugs they're going to eat your aphid so things like lavender that will flower for a good long time we've got agapanthus again which is going to work really well and we've got a whole herb bank next to the top greenhouse where things like lacewings uh, love to love to live it's really apt that I find Emily picking up apples because I know that Emily's got a particular interest in the apples at Stourhead because Emily has made and does make her own cider. <laughs> yes, I certainly have years ago. We wanted to experiment and see what our apples would produce in terms of uh, quality cider and it turned out it was actually quite good. You can grow apple trees in a very small area. So we see here behind us dwarf varieties uh, pyramid grown apple trees where you have a tiered system we're working for three tiers because I'm not very tall and rather than have to use this um, interesting apple catcher I can actually pick and prune the apples from the ground which takes m less resources less time you maximize the production because you're growing in 360 degrees and also, if you've got horizontal limbs, they produce the best apples. And it was the monks came up with this um, way of pruning and training apple trees. So you, you generate the branches from lower down the tree and then you can get these lovely cones, cone-shaped apple trees. Yeah. So the monks didn't necessarily want to be climbing ladders all the time. Thanks, Emily. I'd better let you get on. I think I've 
delayed you long enough. Nice, I'll, uh, I'll carry on with my uh, <laughs> apple picking, shall I? <laughs> So I'm walking through the landscape at Stourhead and I'm on my way to meet Robert, one of our regular visitors, but I can't help but be distracted by the view across the lake. Every day I walk through here and it fills me with joy and the joy comes from different places every day, whether it's the plant collection, whether it's the architecture or whether it's just the fact that the place is stunning. Your mind has to go back through history and just think about the challenges that were faced in the 18th century when the landscape was created. Henry the Magnificent, or Henry Hall II as we call him as well, created this landscape. And although as visitors we're really used to seeing it, it's a landscape that was really quite contemporary at its time and it was really edgy in its design and it was new to people. It happened before Capability Brown was on the scene creating his wonderful landscapes. So I'm on my way down the hill towards the Temple of Flora, which was the first temple built at Stourhead, and I'm going to meet Robert. And Robert is a regular visitor to Stourhead, and when I say regular, I don't mean seasonally, but actually daily. And that's what Stourhead does to people. It makes people want to come back every day, explore the place, and see it change. And here he is, standing on the steps of the Temple of Flora. Morning, Robert. How Morning, are you? Morning, Alan. I'm very well. Shall we take a walk, then? Yes, why not, Alan? On a beautiful day. You have very much become our eyes and ears on the wider ah, estate. Yes. If I see something which shouldn't be happening, I report it to someone. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, it, it does. Yeah. You, know, you tell me about a tree that's down yeah. or a branch down or the sheep that's not looking yeah. very well. That's and it. We can hear the wind yeah. whist whistling through that tree overhead at the moment. And yeah. that, that tree, if you didn't know, is a variegated tulip tree. And oh. it is yeah. the biggest variegated tulip tree in the country. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Happened. So it's a champion. Champion yes. because of its size. Goodness. Although I work here, you know, I still find therapy in the fact that I can walk yes. around the garden with yes. Louise, my wife, in the evening, or yes. I can walk around with the kids at the weekend. And, yes. you know, now the boys are getting older, they can even run with me, you know, which is actually they can run faster <laughs> than me now. It's just fulfilling to see it and, uh, and to... Uh, I see it so differently throughout the year. Yeah. I started coming here sort of weekends about 15 years ago. Yeah. And then once I retired, I started coming almost every day. Yeah. And it's, it's something to get up for in the morning. Yeah. In all weathers. Yeah. I can tell what kind of day it's going to be by the kind of coat Robert's wearing. Yes. And what I like with these areas is you get a sense of the effort that went into creating somewhere yes, like Stourhead. It is. You? It must have been just an ordinary little valley with a stream running through it. It was, and there was there was still life here. You know, before the whole yeah. family were here, there was a little village here. But um, they they did something really really special. They did. And for me, the key and you've kind of hinted on the key there, is what Henry the Magnificent did. And I use that expression a lot, that he consulted the genius of the place. You know, he looked at the potential this valley yeah. had. Yeah. And he didn't necessarily redesign the whole thing. He looked at the beauty of nature yeah. and just capitalised on it a yeah. little bit. You can hear the wind beating through that you poplar. Yeah. And do you know poplar trees? You know, the poplar trees at the base of the leaf, where the leaf is connected to the tree, the leaf petiole, which is the stalk that the leaf sits on, is oval. Yeah. So instead of being round, so when the wind hits it, the leaves tremble rather oh. than just sway. Yeah. So that's why you, they're called in some places trembling poplars because oh. the leaves the leaves tremble rather yeah. than blow in the wind, and that's why we hear that lovely that lovely yeah. noise. But in between the poplars and the birch is the Temple of Apollo, and he's god of the sun. And then, of course, from the grotto, when we go into the grotto in a moment, which is really dark, you can look out through the window and you can see up to the sunshine yeah. shining across the lake. Yeah. 
So pretty much from this point onwards, Robert, we're walking into the underworld. In the grotto, we have Ariadne, the reclined nymph. We have mm -hmm. the river god who we'll meet in a moment. But what you do have is a complete, complete difference, complete difference in temperature. You'll see, you'll see the springs, you'll hear the water, and it's, it's the essence of life. Mm. You do have to mind your step as you go through the grotto. And as the light changes during the day, it gets darker and darker in certain points of it. And the way we stood here looking straight at... The river god? Yes. He's quite a feature, isn't he? Yeah, he's, so a, he's beckoning you. He is. And there she is, the reclined nymph. And that water that you hear, Robert, never stops. That's Constantly it. flowing, naturally spring-fed, straight into the River Stour. But when you turn around, and that's key at Stourhead always, is to turn around and see what's behind you, because yes. the views change. Yes. You turn around, we see out the window, we can yep. see the bridge in the village. Yep. Um, and that's what Henry would have seen. Yes. The window of the grotto almost becomes a little bit like a picture frame. It does, doesn't it? You feel you're almost in, in, in the lake. But there's nowhere else in England like this. No, there's not. Good, Alan. Thank you very much for... You're welcome. Yes. It's been really nice yes. just to have that time with you in the yes. garden. Yes. And we'll do it again great. sometime. I hope so. But I need to take the advice of the river god now and carry on on my journey and... Have a good day. Yeah, and enjoy your walk. Thank you. I've reached the pinnacle of the lakeside walk, right between the magnificence of the Pantheon and the Gothic Cottage, where I found Mark Case, my assistant head gardener, and he keeps track of all those tasks that the garden team need to do throughout the year. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this time of the year is ideal for it, really. Look at new views and vistas that have opened up through the garden with the leaves changing colour. This list keeps on going on. But standing at this point, you and I can look across the lake and we can see work that we've done five, six, seven years ago and we can start seeing young trees filling the gaps that we intended them to fill. We can start seeing mature trees like the tulip tree on the island ahead of us um, turning colour for autumn and it's really rewarding, isn't it? It sure is. Just seeing over by the boathouse where we're looking now, we had a load of cherries over there just at the start of the season. It had a load of cankle all over them so we decided to remove them and clear the area and we've replanted with acerubrums so we get a nice sort of red foliage through this sort of time of year now. And we chose acerubrum because it's a tree that existed in the garden under Henry the Magnificent's guidance in the 18th century. But what, out on the island, Mark, while we're looking at the island, we can see, we can see the willow, the Salix Pratensis, can't we? We can see a mature one and a young one. Yeah, this winter, I think it's on my list to pull out again this year. Yeah. To get the colour to come back, start a springtime with its new shoots. You know, it's a, it's a magnificent tree, but if we left it go, it would become way too big for its space at, at Stourhead. And some trees you can use in your own garden, but you will need to pollard them. Pollarding is a process of cutting them back to the main stem, isn't it? And That's right, yeah. The new shoots come and you, you get that brilliant orange colour from the new shoots. It looks you, very scary at the start, but it, it does, does work out better in the end. You've got a lovely young one on the left-hand side of it, haven't you? Yeah, that was just a cutting from last year. We stuck up in the wall garden, let it grow on a bit and decided, oh, let's put it on the island and see what happens. Yeah. We lost one a few years back on there. So we'll probably do the same this year. Take some of cuttings from the ones that are on the island again, grow them on a bit and bring them back out to the island later on. And it's constant replacement, isn't it? Yeah, all the time. Looking further around the landscape, we can see, you know, we can see the azaleas and the rhododendrons. And again, on the opposite side of the lake, that beautiful Acer palmatum and it's one of the Japanese maples and has a really cracking colour to it, doesn't it? You found a handkerchief tree seedling this year, didn't you? 
Yeah, I found three or four this year. Yeah. Just clearing a few azaleas away. And then there they were, just underneath my foot, lucky not to tread on them. And that's the next generation of plants. You know, they go into the tree nursery, and then we know at Stourhead that we've got seeds of our own trees coming yep. on back into the collection. Because the garden is designed as a series of unfolding views. You know, you enter the garden, you have a spectacular view, and then the view is taken away. But what I do find remarkable here is the is the number of plants that are used and how the plants have to work for a living. Yeah, each plant in the garden has to have a reason for being there, giving us a nice shape, format. Even the size counts. The bigger, the better sometimes, but yeah. sometimes the small, delicate ones make a big difference as well. I know that we've got Cercidophyllum planted on the opposite side of the lake, which are the katsura trees. And also you get that sweet smell from the thyrsophyllums as well. That's great. And they're over there. We'll keep them as a small sort of shrub like We won't let them grow into a big tree. You can coppice them, so you could make a fo- focal point of a thyrsophyllum and get the same effect in your own yeah, garden. Yeah, just a small you? corner somewhere. Yeah. Great. Just keep it under control every year. Three, four years, touch it back a bit, and you have a lovely tree, lovely shape. So, Mark, what are you off to do now? Um, off to do next week's task for the team. So we've got Monday to Friday to work through. I'll get them all busy next week going on probably odd leaves and heavy areas. Yeah, some, some of the early leaves are just falling heavy on the grass, aren't they? Yeah, just a bit. Let's get rid of that. Get the yeah. grass. I want the grass to be green, not yellow. Yeah. So we'll move all that. One of the beauties of working and managing somewhere like Stourhead is you manage it from the tops of the trees to the bottom of the lake. And I think... What's lovely is that you're, you're planting trees, you're managing woodlands, you're managing an environment, but actually you're caring for habitats as well. Seeing success in habitat management is, is one of the most uplifting parts of our jobs because we're dealing with living animals and living creatures and we're returning habitats so that they can succeed in our environment again. And our ranger, Townsend Holmes, has been working on the dormice habitat at Stourhead for quite a few years and it's turned out to be a great success hasn't it Tam? It has and we, we started um, eight or nine years ago now when we, we started putting the first nest boxes up and we, we decided on seven different places um, covering areas sort of from around the gardens um, right up to King Alfred's Tower to, um, to put up our nest boxes. You know where we're standing now at the bottom of Sixwells Valley both sides of this valley have got dormice in and they've been found on the edges of the garden too and it's that really lovely um, structure within the trees and the woodland that the dormice like. Yeah. So all the lovely uh, intertwining branches for them to move around and the, the diversity of the species that are here as well for them. So they really enjoy that kind of shrubby layer. Yeah, they need to be able to move freely and they, they rarely come to the ground. So they, they need to be able to move throughout the woodland and travel you know, during the night to forage. And yeah. And I've seen, I've seen a dormouse in real life. I'm lucky enough to have been that close to one. And they're the most beautiful things, aren't they? They are gorgeous creatures. They are amazing. They're a lovely honey colour. They've got big black eyes. And they're the only species of mouse to have a furry tail as well. Yeah. So they're quite distinctive. I'm lucky enough to you know, check the nest yeah. boxes every year. And we've got 183 nest boxes, yeah. I think, across the estate. Um, and to check those... and. You can open a box up as carefully as you can and you can't always stop them escaping. Yeah. And one day I had six young dormice come out. Wow. I had one on top of the box, one on my arm, one underneath, one on the tree in front of me. And I was just frozen to the spot until they moved. And to be that close is just amazing. Does the kind of change in management over the past few years, you know, whether it's agriculturally, whether it's on the farms, has that made a big difference to the habitats, do you think? 
Um, I just think we've got such a good range of habitats here for lots of different species. And, you know, dormice are a really good indicator of, um, you know, if you've got dormice present, then you've got a whole load of other species present too. And that's just the woodland. You know, when we get out on the, the chalk downland side of the estate, um, there's a, a whole range of other species. There's tree sparrows, um, that's another species that's been in decline. Um, and we've got a good population here of those as well. We've stabilised the population, uh, that's working with the RSPB as well, and we are now hopefully increasing the population of tree sparrows. But they react very specifically to changes in farming practices. Yeah. So now that we're, you know, we're overwintering stubble fields again and things like that, so that seed source is there for the tree sparrows. Across the 2,500 acres town, we have woodland, we have the ornamental garden at Stourhead, the Every, everybody sees but also we need to manage relationships and habitats on other people's land like our tenant farmers we do yeah we have to work quite closely with all our tenant farmers on the, the chalk downland on the eastern side of the estate you know, we work closely with the tenant farmer there um, carrying out lots of different work ragwork pulling or scrub clearing and you know, if we didn't clear scrub on the downland up there and work with our farmers to do that then it would turn back slowly into woodland and that's not the kind of habitat it is it's you know we need that grass species up there for all the orchids and butterflies that that we have there Um, I think all four of our tenant farms now have conservation headlands in that are beneficial for you know grey partridge the barn owls the tree sparrows a whole range of different species it's a fantastic job to do to be able to be involved in keeping that balance right well that's it from Stourhead for this episode of the National Trust's Gardens podcast I hope you've enjoyed this first programme I've really enjoyed sharing it with you at Stourhead we've seen autumn colours, we've seen beautiful reflections in the lake but what we have seen is a garden changing and responding to a season if you'd like to hear more, you can subscribe, follow or sign up for more National Trust programmes through your podcast app. I'm off to Croom in November, which I'm really looking forward to. Croom was one of Capability Brown's first landscape gardens that he did on his own, outside of the bounds of working for somebody else. Hopefully you can join me then, and in the meantime, if you're at Stourhead, say hello as you wander our estate. <laughs>